Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Picture House Central and another in the series of BAFTA Craft Masterclasses. Um, I'm very happy that we have Cliff Martinez here to talk about his body of work and his career this evening. Before becoming uh, one of the preeminent composers of contemporary cinema, Cliff has been a drummer with Captain Beefheart, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Dickies, Lydia Lunch, and the Weirdos. He's had a long-standing working relationship with Steven Soderbergh, who worked on Soderbergh's feature debut in 1989, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. More recently, he's had an incredibly fruitful collaboration with the Danish director, Nicholas Winding Refn, and the new film that they've collaborated on together, uh, Neon Demon, which just premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, is opening in the UK on the 8th of July. He's also composed outside of those directors for a wide, wide range of films from mainstream films such as The Lincoln Lawyer and Arbitrage through to foreign films such as Mir Culpa and Al Origine and also for more edgy affair such as films like Narc, Wonderland and Spring Breakers. Um, and I was trying to think if there's, if there's one word that I would use to describe Cliff Martin, uh, Martinez's body of work. It's it's texture. It was one of the, the music is one of the two shocks I had with with the Nick. Um, the other one is just how visceral it is. If for anyone who doesn't know, it's set in a hospital. One of the first sort of advanced major advancements in medicine, 1900, um, a hospital in New York, and it really is very very graphic in how. It portrays all the operations and the experiments that the doctors carry out. But the other shock was the music, because it was my assumption that I was going to watch a classic period drama on television, which would have music that would represent that era. And this sequence you see is the first, the pre-credit sequence on the first episode. And it was an absolute shock to suddenly have this very contemporary music playing. How did the idea for this come about and, and then develop? I wish I could take credit for that. Um, it came to me by way of Stephen, the director. Um, maybe somebody gave him the idea. I don't know, but it didn't come from me. Um, I think he gave me about three episodes. And um, whenever anybody, whenever a director is editing a film or a TV series, they use what's called temporary music. And, um, Stephen has never used, I've done, I don't think, like 11, 10 films and two television series with him. He has never used my music as temporary music. The Nick, for the first time, he'd cut in Contagion, Drive, Spring Breakers, I think, and uh, used a lot of music of mine that was all this kind of stark electronic music. And um, at first, I kind of was shocked, too. I thought, well, all right. Everybody's trying so hard to to kind of um, conjure up the feeling of 1900 New York. Why am I the one guy that's completely at odds with that? And he said, "Well, that's what I want." So, but it's funny after after scoring a couple episodes with that contemporary electronic sound, it just felt right. And I think as long as you um, fulfill the dramatic requirements of the of the story of the film of the tv series with music there's really a lot of latitude to, to do it in the whatever style you want um and i think after two or three episodes of seeing the electronic thing you just kind of took it for granted that that was the sound of the show so it, it shocked me at first and i think it could have gone horribly wrong it, you know it could have not worked but um you just kind of accept it as the language of the series after after a couple of hours. It's quite amazing as well that the music is very propulsive. It like this um, piece that we heard. You, you really feel like you're being carried along by the music thread. Well, that kind of came to me after years of doing kind of this ambient, lugubrious, you know, textural Eno esque type music. That I got burned a couple times where I just kind of sunk the whole film and you know brought the energy down. So that's something I'd been kind of working on, was trying to do things that were more propulsive and more rhythmic. So, and I come from a background of being a drummer, so now wherever I can squeeze in, shoehorn in some kind of rhythm or, or beat or something, I, I try to do it. 
And there was a lot of that in the neck. I read an interesting interview uh, with you from a couple of years ago. I thought you made a salient point about the fact your experience in music is, is, is being a drummer. And when you went into film scoring, you seemed to almost go in the opposite direction. And you said that the heart and, and where people feel great emotion is not in the rhythm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think for the most part, fe- people feel drama and emotion in in the normal uh, conventional elements of music, which is harmony and melody. Certainly not in the beat. Um, so yeah, I agree with that. Um, let's jump to the last clip um, in that montage, Spring Breakers. Before collaborating with Skrillex on that, um, I believe you worked with Brian Eno on the theme to Spore, is it a computer game about a decade before? Um, what's it like collaborating with other musicians? And is it just easy for you because that's something that you did as a member of a band? Uh, that's why I got out of a band. I, got, <laughs> I, um, I, uh, I have little patience with... with um, and the Spore, the video game, I was didn't collaborate with Brian Eno. I was replaced by Brian Eno, which... It's okay by me. That's like saying your girlfriend cheated on you with Brad Pitt or something. It's just like, <laughs> it's kind of a badge of honor to say I was replaced by Brian Eno. Uh, Skrillex, that was a, that was a bit of a, a collaboration. I didn't see him very much. I saw him a couple times. And um, there was a little bit of back and forth between the two of us. But I think for the most part, he was f- traveling a lot. He was, you know, there was we didn't have much FaceTime. So I think for the most part, I was just aware of what he was doing and, and vice versa. But there's a couple things where we actually sent files back and forth. And then um, the opening of the film was um, one of his biggest compositions, Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites. I heard that when I first saw the film for the first time. And uh, the director and I loved it and thought that that could be used as a theme which is what was going on, what I tried to do, a very slow version of, of that piece for the shootout at the end that you showed. And uh, Skrillex was like, oh gosh, that's so 2011. And uh, I couldn't even relate to that comment because I just thought it was a great piece of music and it was my first introduction to Skrillex. I thought, well, it's you know, it's good music. I, I don't care what period it came from. So he reluctantly kind of went along with that. But, uh, yeah, usually when people say, yeah, we're going to put you in a bag with Marilyn Manson, Michael Nyman, and shake it up, and we'll have this great hybrid score, and usually that never works. But the Skrillex thing came off very nicely, I thought. And it's almost wall-to-wall music in Spring Breakers, isn't it? Yeah, there's like, I think there's like 15 or 16 songs. There's a half dozen songs by Skrillex. There's a bunch of underscore by Skrillex, and then there's underscore by me. And it's almost like a rock video. The music is almost continuous, which usually, I think, rarely works. But I think it was pretty successful with Spring Breakers. By contrast to that, um, we saw two very brief moments from Sex, Lies, and Videotape in 89, um, which there's there's sparse music throughout the film. Um, Let's go just back a little before that and your move from being in a band to deciding that you wanted to write, first of all, television, I believe you wrote an episode of Paul Rubin's TV show and then moved on to film. What was the driving impetus? Was it just to get out of a band and this seemed like a good avenue? Yeah, getting out of the band, I guess. But I was fascinated by um, computer music technology at the time. Uh, I had an SB12 sampling drum machine. I had uh, the Roland MSQ700, which is one of the first hardware sequencers which stored all its data on a cassette tape and I was just fascinated by all that actually it came with the um, first Chili Pepper album when the uh, producer suggested to me that I replace myself with a drum machine and handed me a Lynn drum machine and said why don't you program a beat for such and such a song and I thought I'm going to be extinct if I do that (laughs) but I was fascinated by the technology and that's what kind of drove me I think was uh my love of musical gadgets and the then kind of explosion of um, music technology. But not everyone can embrace that and embrace the new technologies and also at the same time 
embrace the ability to understand how music can affect an image. And it's something you seem to have got. You, whether we're talking about Sex Lies and Videotape or around the same time, Pump Up the Volume, which was kind of an era-defining film, it seems that you really hit the ground running and seem to just have this natural ability to, to score a scene. Maybe so. I mean, I think I had some pretty good teachers, mostly Steven Soderbergh, who had a pretty unique uh, philosophy about how music was to work with films. He wanted it to be a small imprint, not make a big deal out of itself, not be a whole lot of it. There was, I think, 20 minutes of music in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is like one piece of music per reel, whereas your average film would have like 50 minutes. That had 20 minutes. So he really wanted the music to be pretty stark, um, not very obvious, and um, very minimal. So I learned from him. I would write pieces of music. He'd come over to the house, and he'd go, that's, that's cool. What's that thing on top? I said, you mean the melody? He goes, yeah, get rid of that. <laughs> and what's, what's that thing at the bottom? Oh, that's the bass. Yeah, get rid of that. And I said, yeah, but now it's just going... He goes, yeah. So I, he had a very unique take on how music worked to picture, but I really learned a lot from him. And I did, you know, probably worked for a decade just doing films for him. There was Pump Up the Volume. There was a couple other things. Pee-wee's Playhouse, but I really kind of learned my whole, got my whole film scoring music identity from Stephen, I think. And how did Stephen and you first encounter each other? Uh, I had done the score to one episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse. That was on my reel, which was a cassette that I kept in my back pocket. And I used to have kind of parties at my house where I'd have my friends step up to the microphone and make rude body noises and then I would play it on a um, MIDI controller drum set and make kind of these odd sound collages so that was on the tape also a whole bunch of those things really not very commercial Pee Wee's Playhouse and that and that kind of circulated among my friends one of whom was a um, sound person he was working on um, Alienation which I think was originally scored by Jerry Goldsmith and um, they wanted some music that would that the aliens might listen to so my friend Mark called me up and uh, asked me to do some alien sounding music because they didn't want Jerry to do that and uh, I wrote some really weird music and Steven Soderbergh was Mark's roommate came in one night sat down and before we were even properly introduced, started making comments about the music and how it fit with the picture. And I thought, I don't think this guy's a musician, but his instincts about how to fit um, music to picture are pretty right on and pretty smart. And afterwards, he asked me if I'd score his first picture, which was Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, years later, he told me... Um, he hired me because I was the only film composer he knew. <laughs> <laughs> and how has your relationship uh, developed over the years? You, you talked about what he, he said he wanted with Sex, Lies and Videotape. Um, has it become more complex in any way, or does he just come in respond to a piece of music that you've composed? Stephen. Yes. Um, he doesn't talk to me, and it's um, not because we don't get along. It just seems like after 25 years that, we communicate by um, ESP or something, um, or maybe he's really busy or indifferent. I don't know, but I like to think that it's um, – he only calls me for the things that I'm well cast for, like the Nick or Contagion or Solaris. And um, we seem to talk less and less. I mean, I'll hear from him if I do something he doesn't like. But for the most part, he gives me a very um, – a very broad sense of direction like the Nick. He gave me a temp score, which was all this stark electronic stuff, which is a pretty big direction because my impulse would have been to do something that was more fitting for the period. So he'll usually give me something pretty, you know, a pretty pervasive direction. And then he just lets you go until you do something wrong. I think uh, I probably got a total of about four text messages over the course of the first season of The Nick, one of which was 
I thought I heard strings, search and destroy. (laughs) (laughs) He wanted it to be like a purely electronic score. And when it comes to working with other directors, do you you have just a different process with each director or do you tend to say, just give me the material, I'll go off, compose, we chat later? Yeah, I kind of like to be left alone, (laughs) to be honest. Um, Doesn't always work that way. and I usually bug them a lot with a lot of questions. Uh, the process is usually I get a rough cut of the film. I lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling for a couple weeks. Then I pick up the phone and ask them a lot of questions about stuff. And usually they'll have a lot of ideas themselves. And then usually the first couple weeks of actual writing of music, I kind of do in isolation. And then I present them with my ideas and, and then wait for their feedback. And that's usually the first big step. You know, the the first few pieces of music are kind of the biggest mm. biggest step for me. And going a stage before that, what is it that, outside of working with directors that you've worked before and you, you have a sort of a trusting relationship with, um, what is it that attracts you to a, to a project? Do you get the script early? Is it something about the narrative or just something different, a challenge? I guess it's different for each. Um, Sometimes it'll be a director that's got a body of work that interests me. Um, Sometimes it's the type of film, like I recently did a film that is kind of a a light comedy, and I've always wanted to do that because it seems like I'm always doing films about people getting doing drugs and getting stabbed or blown up or shot. I just thought I would love to do something that's a little bit lighter in tone. So I had an opportunity to do that this past year. Um, I always wanted to do an action film. I'm doing one now, and then I did the video game, which was nothing but action, called Far Cry 4. And um, so there's usually something about the project that attracts me. Maybe it could be a cast, somebody in the cast, the director's track record, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's money. Um, sometimes it's like if it's enough money. Like I did commercials this past year, yep. and per minute of music, commercials are just way ahead of films. And um, at first I didn't think I would like it. And then they said, well, we're going to pay you this amount of money. You know what? I, this is a great idea. <laughs> um the video game was a challenge I took because I really wanted to do action film, and that was an action movie. And a video game is pretty much, you know, 80% action music. So there's a lot of reasons for doing doing things. Um, and your approach to working on the video game, um, could you talk us through the process? Do you create themes that are then sort of manipulated um, as people playing the game, or how does how does the whole process work in terms of your input? Well, there's a lot that goes on that that I have nothing, very little to do with. I mean, the thing that's very unique about video games, as opposed to TV and television, is that you're working without a picture. They'll send you bits and pieces of what things look like, what a fight scene looks like, what a suspense scene looks like, but the music plays out differently every single time depending on how the player moves through the game. So before I took the project on, I called two friends that were composers and I said, how did you like your video game experience? One of them said I loved it because there's no restrictions. You don't have to work with a picture. There's, you know, you have lots of freedom. And then another friend of mine said, I hated it. Um, I worked on it for six weeks and I gave them all their money back because I found it frustrating not to work with a picture. And I kind of find, found both of those things that um, I've always been dependent on the um, the film for the structure, the intention and the structure, the style, everything about the music was dictated by the picture. And not having that for the video game was kind of tough. But if I did something and kind of missed the point, they'd say, you know, we want tension cues one to 10 intensity or action cues one to 10 intensity. One is a fist fight. 10 is two armies fighting. And I'd send them something. I say, this, here's a seven. They go, that's not a seven. That's more like a three. 
I'd say, all right, then I guess I got my, you know, one of my threes covered. Um, and it was three hours of music and it went on for about a year. So it was a little bit drawn out and kind of laborious. And you never really get to see how it fits because I'm a terrible video game player. So I tried to play the game and, and I would the game starts out where you're hiding behind these oil drums and you'd stick your head up and get shot and killed and you'd have to start over. So I never really got to play the game and see how my music fit into it. So it was, there were some frustrations with the, the video game thing for me. But thinking about the, the comment that you said a moment ago about you get a rough cut, you might watch it and you kind of lie back and look at the ceiling, think about it. Do you ever composed before that stage uh, a script stage where you feel inspired by perhaps the tone of a, a script or do you always wait till you get the rough cut I always wait now I used to do that I mean very few people will hire you at the script stage anyhow um, so that's usually not an option but there's been a few times when it's been suggested why don't you write something to the script and in my experience it's always been a waste of time 100% because things that you think that will work, you really don't know until you see the picture and you put it with the picture. And then then you know for sure. So everything I've done, I think I did it for traffic. I wrote a lot of music, maybe a half dozen pieces of music. None of it was used. And um, I forget what other ones. But yeah, I don't do that anymore. Traffic from 2000. The score doesn't play with leitmotifs. In, in a classic sense, but you have these little flourishes and there's, there's, there's one, a high-pitched flourish that comes in there to follow her character. You've clearly been used to working with Stephen in the way that he uh, creates his fractured narratives of going back and forth in time, but here you have numerous plot strands about one big world that you have to bring together. Um, how much of a challenge was it to do that with, with the school? Well, I have a pretty loose definition of a theme or a mo- motif i guess there there is some connective material but it's often not a you know a melody that you might whistle or a or a chord progression but it'll simply be a, a recognizable sound and i suppose that's one of the reasons i kind of like offbeat i choose some strange instruments sometimes is because you hear one note and you've got it you know what it is it's something familiar so there are some kind of repeating things there. I didn't notice too much of it. I know that last composition was something that repeated a couple times. Um, I I kind of tried to follow the color coding of the film. Uh, blue was usually, um, I think it was Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, the kind of the burnt uh, Mexican thing was, was another... Uh, part of the the story so I kind of tried to keep the locations somewhat musically segregated but as often happens with any film you I start out thinking this is my theme for this character or this situation and then oftentimes the director particularly one like Steven will take that theme and put it in a place where you don't want it and it and it works great and you have to go well okay there goes my the continuity for that theme because we it was for this this and this and he just threw it over there so the music tends to go where it wants to go eventually so now i'm a little bit like that too i start out trying to keep everything segregated and and uh you know pointing always towards one character or one situation and then as i see that it seems to work elsewhere i'll i'll let it go and not be so uptight about it again this is a very good example of of one of your compositions of, of being like a layer of texture on a film. And the reason I wanted to, to show these clips is so you could talk about the relationship you have with the sound designer because so many um, of the moments in, in this film with the score, the score kind of bleeds out into the sound. And I love it because we have this sense that with all this drama happening, and the music draws us into the drama. We've also got the outside world carrying on as normal, having no idea of who these people are around them. And um, and it, it, it seems like a very complex relationship with the film's sound design, particularly when we move to the interior of a character like Benicia del Toro in the car, 
where suddenly the music takes over everything and we no longer hear exterior sounds. Well, Stephen Schock, this is one of my, traffic's one of my favorite kind of um, ambient textural scores, I guess Sex Lies would be the first one. Um, Stephen really surprised me with, with traffic because a lot of this kind of really, really simplistic, just kind of textural droning stuff I thought was going to be far in the background. And many times he took all the sound effects like car engines or crowd noises, like that last scene, and pushed the music up really loud and turned the sound effects down really, really low. And I didn't know that when I saw the rough cut, the sound effects were kind of up there. And did the number of times, like when the car blows up, there's a big car explosion. And I think in my rough cut, it was like, it was this big explosion. And then I saw it in the theater, it was like, and uh, the music was, was, which was like one note for three minutes, was like really, really loud. <laughs> so um, he has an interesting sense of background and foreground when it comes to the music. Most of this music was intended to be very much in the background, and he frequently pushed it up into the foreground. As far as sound design goes, most of the things that sound like they might be the sound department I, I'm going to take credit for. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, for me, it's like if it's pitched, that's me. If it's unpitched, it's probably them. But uh, most of the stuff in traffic is is me, not the sound department. It is that thing. It's, it's, it's that blurring of the lines because I wouldn't want to call this the music to traffic. It is a score, but it's, but it's a complete score. It works on so many different layers of all these sounds, and they all seem to combine to become the, the score itself. Yeah. Um, I mean, my background is I kind of, like I was telling you earlier, I was introduced to Stephen through a, a sound person, and I hung out with them a lot, and I kind of learned how they tell story, tell stories of a film through sound, through, you know, sound effects and sound design. So I've always been fascinated by that gray area between music and sound design and um you know without and Stephen was a big um advocate of of not use of using melody and harmony kind of two main food groups of music using that very sparingly and using texture and uh, traffic is probably one of the best examples of a film that um the score is very evocative i think without uh, any pesky melody or harmony or very little of it i remember seeing a a master class about 20 years ago with some shoemaker scorsese's editor and she was talking about the sound guy that she worked with on raging bull um and he recorded the elephant sounds and the horses and for the punches um and the sound of a head being thrown back and then he destroyed everything because every time he starts on a new project he refuses to use anything that he's uh, composed or created for a previous film. You mentioned that you have an instrument, uh, an interest in obscure instruments, and you've used a lot in different scores. Um, can you talk about that and the idea? Do, do you would you like each film to almost be a reaction to the previous one that you'd worked on, so that you're constantly working with fresh ideas? Well, unfortunately, I can't really throw out musical instruments with each score and then go, well, I've got another 10 years to learn how to play that instrument. (laughs) So I don't think that way. And um, I like to think of everything as an evolution rather than a, you know, radical departure. Um, Nicholas Reffin, for example, when we worked on Only God Forgives, said, I want to get as far away from drive as possible. And I thought, why would you want to do that? That was like, that was really successful. Um, because if I could figure out the recipe as to why that film score was kind of as successful as it was, I would repeat it in a second. I mean, I just wish I knew what it was. Um, so I don't really run away from what I've done. I mean, every film is a different story, so that's going to happen automatically. And as much as I would like to try to reinvent myself 100% each time, that's not really possible. So I'm always drawing on my old tricks and trying to put them across in a different way. Like one of the things I do now is the textural stuff. I try to find new recipes, 
new formulas for creating that kind of ambient texture stuff, which even though they, they're not, I haven't done anything quite as hardcore ambient as uh, traffic, but it's still an element in my, in my scores. And I try to find new ways to do it. Um, that traffic was all kind of organic sound. Lately I've been trying to do it with synthesizers and try to achieve that kind of organic sound textural sound with synthesizers. So I'm always trying to tweak and refine rather than completely replace. I'm just too lazy to, you know, to throw everything out and start over. Solaris from 2002. By any measure, I think that's an extraordinary score to a film because it, it encompasses brilliantly both the narrative and, and the emotional um, journey that Chris Calvin, the main character played by John, uh, George Clooney, takes. And we talk again about layers and textures to the score, but it strikes me that there are various layers of music going on and what they represent. First of all, is it baritone steel drums? Uh, yes. Um, which, is it that they represent sort of the planet and the planet's power over the characters on the spaceship? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, well, this is my own reading. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, a lot of these instrument selection have to do with whatever I'm preoccupied at the time with. And I had just gotten these uh, baritone steel drums from Trinidad, the country of origin, and they were set up in the living room, and I was just determined to shoehorn them into my next project. And I, when I told Stephen about it, he was like, uh-huh, isn't, isn't that the instrument that Jimmy Buffett uses? <laughs> And I said, yeah, but these are baritones, so it's, which was intentional because I knew if I used the soprano, it would sound like Jimmy Buffett. Um, so I didn't have any reason for it at the time. And after the fact, I thought it represents this or that. But at the, mo- at the time, it was just like, I like this instrument. I'm, I'm going to shove it in there one way or another. But it adds to this whole dreamlike world that, that we're sort of launched into. I thought so. I thought all the – and there's another instrument that's also kind of these tubular bells, and I thought all the pitched metallic percussion kind of, t- to my ear, connoted outer space or um, – um, anyhow, the, the metal percussion, I thought, was a sound that seemed to fit. I'm not sure why. And unlike, again, one of the reasons for showing this sequence is we, we have the sound of the bar at the beginning and the two of them talking, but then we leave that world and, and we enter this, this world of theirs with no other exterior sounds. Um, what was the conversation this time with Stephen, or was it just something that happened in post? Well, as far as him ducking the uh, all the other sound, I don't know if that was in there. Honestly, I don't remember a conversation about how they would, how how it would be mixed. Um, I don't know. That was a long time ago. That was two thousand two. I honestly don't remember what the uh, discussion was about that. I just remember the the idea of steel drums was greeted with some, I thought, some skepticism at first. Nicholas Winding Reference Drive from two thousand eleven. Every time I watch that, I, I, I keep wondering about perspectives of the piece of music we have before the fight. Of is, is it the projection of what she's feeling at that moment in time? Is it the sense of protection he feels for her? And then at the end, we have this other music. Is it her horror at him or his feeling that he's lost her? I, was there a conversation about this that you had with Nicholas? Or am I just talking through my backside again? <laughs> um. I don't remember talking about it, but I know that it was it was his intention not to score the action stuff, but the uh, prelude to the to the to the violence and the aftermath. And it kind of followed that pattern in a couple places. There's a car chase that has music before the chase and after the chase, but not during. And that's kind of a pattern that uh, Soderbergh follows also. A lot of times when there's big, intense action moments. The music doesn't need to say anything. There's enough of enough information up on the screen and the sound and the images. So that's the only conversation about that that I remember. Um, I think the uh, the music that comes before the the violence came earlier when he meets um, I- Irene. 
that was the love theme, I guess, if you call it that. So it was a, that was a kind of, the, I think, the second iteration of that theme. And, um, and I'm not sure whose point of view. I mean, that's always the important thing when writing music is whose point of view are you playing it from, the audience or one of the characters or some sort of omniscient overseer. And I think it's kind of all three. I think it's everybody's perspective except for the bad guy is doesn't get included there. But um, <laughs> um, I think it's both of there. I think it's the couple's perspective. And uh, I guess that's how I would explain it. Were you surprised by the response to the score? Because it, it, it just, it almost felt like one of those movies that the score suddenly became this epoch-defining music. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing film music for a couple of decades, and I never had anything that was as popular as this score. And to me, it felt like it was kind of an extension of what I've been doing for the past 20 years. So, yeah, it shocked me, and I was kind of puzzled by it. I didn't quite get it. Still don't. If I understood the recipe, I would... I'm pretty eager to repeat the experience. <laughs> I did. I think it's. I think the score's really interesting in the film because there are a lot of films I could watch where the score adds nothing whatsoever. Um, but you, with this film, you have a central character who doesn't say a lot. Even in the car chases, he doesn't do what normal guys do in movies that feature car chases. He does the bare minimal, and. That's Nicholas Winding reference. I have to get that. Excuse me, please. <laughs> and um, and it's the music that constantly that really drives this film in a way that it doesn't with a lot of other films. And we'll come on to Only God Forgives now. But um, is that Nicholas? Because I know with his previous films that music is such an important part of his films. What what conversations do you actually have in advance and discussions and how much detail goes into his discussions with you? Well, I think for the music to, to pop out in the way that it does in his films, you've got a clear space for it. And the, and the way that he does it is it doesn't have people talk a lot. So that 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 gives the music a lot of room, and it also um, encourages the audience to, to um, look towards the music or look somewhere else to draw their own conclusions or to read into the music a little bit more than they normally might. So his films, particularly like the uh, second one, Only God Forgives, was practically a silent movie. And Neon Demon is pretty quiet, too. Not a lot of dialogue. And whenever that happens, people look to the music to get, um, you know, to get a read on, on what's going on. So I think that's how he makes it important. He also cuts the film in a certain way, um, kind of leaves the scenes long. I don't think I ever did a, a nine-minute music cue in a film till till drive you know three minutes four minutes at the most so nicholas was is really uh places a lot of importance on the music and is one of the few directors that cuts cuts it in such a way that often the scenes are a little bit long but once the music is in there he's confident that um you know that the music will pick up the slack and and complete the scene so not many directors do that they want it to be kind of complete you know, with or without music. Um, Do you find it easier working with directors who might be viewed as auteurs or visionary directors? Uh, the only reason I say that, I'm thinking about your working with more mainstream films. Uh, one of the recent scores of yours that I like very much is for Arbitrage. And uh, unfortunately, we would stymie by time with this masterclass, but there's a wonderful sequence where things are starting to fall apart for Richard Gere's character and his daughter, he's a... Um, finance guy and his daughter realizes something's amiss in his company at the same time that Tim Roth's cop appears at the office to inform him that someone he knew had died in a car crash that he thinks gear is implicated in and it's a beautiful piece of music that kind of drives all these different threads and and actually pulls them together is is composing for these guys the more independent sort of visionary directors tougher or easier than working in mainstream film well I think it's more fun um, usually it might be easier because I don't do a lot of big studio pictures when I have sometimes you don't 
just have the director to answer to. Sometimes there's producers in a studio that are involved. There's preview screenings. There's some other things that you might have to answer to besides the director. But with the independent guys like um, Nicholas, um, I'm happy. The director's happy. It's done. There's nobody else you have to please. So I guess in a certain sense, it's easier. Only God Forgives from 2013. Uh, when I saw that for the first time, the first thing that went through my mind is, wow, these guys just sat down and watched The Good, The Bad and The Ugly over and over again. It did just that build up to the final gunfight and you even you build towards a crescendo. Then you come back down and you, and you start up again. Um, we haven't talked about influences. Do you, do you look back on other films for influence? Yeah, I, I steal a lot of ideas from, from other people. Uh, that's a really good example of, you know, I've always thought that... Uh, if you steal from one person, it's plagiarism. If you steal from two or more and combine it, then it kind of passes for originality. And that was sort of a combo platter of um, Goblin, Bach, Ennio Marconi, and Philip Glass. And so it sounds like, kind of says the veneer of originality, but it's really um, a lot of my influences rolled into one. And again, discussions with Nicholas about what he wanted it, it just strikes me that the whole score strikes me as someone having free reign so much to to really go off and do what they want. And I gather you even the um, the karaoke sequences you you'd written or recorded different versions of those. I recorded five karaoke songs, only one of which was actually used in the film. Um, yeah, that was the first thing I did was the karaoke songs, and. Um, they all kind of like fell by the wayside for one reason or another. One of them, the actor couldn't really sing it, so they just plugged it into the into the end credit sequence. Uh, I forget the two other ones. Maybe they couldn't license them or something, or they didn't fit into the film. But I did five originally. And in terms of this piece of music, um, did Nicholas suggest any ideas for the fight and what he wanted for, from? for the fight because the build-up is so incredible oh for this particular yep. piece yeah he had uh, selected some piece of temp music and i don't remember what it was but i remember it was a really repetitive uh real simple kind of arpeggio that just went over and over and over and um he had said he wanted something super repetitive that kind of ebbed and flowed that would hold your attention for the four or five minutes that the scene lasted it was pretty challenging. I think this, there were four complete wholesale rewrites of this particular scene trying to get that. Because it's just something repetitive. It's hard to give it that kind of dynamic shape without it becoming repetitive to the point where the listener becomes complacent and it, instead of being, keeping you on edge, it kind of um, relaxes you. And, um, so it was real a real struggle to do that. And that piece, in some ways, was a blueprint for the Nick. It's my theory I called one thing, which is I tried to start with one instrument, one motif, one idea, and only add to it if I absolutely had to. But Stephen likes the same thing. He was always like, what's that? Get rid of it. And that thing below, get rid of that. And that thing in the middle, get rid of that. Until there was like one thing left. So the one thing left has to have a lot of, you know, dynamic shape to it. It has to be pretty interesting and evolve over time. And that was the principle behind that. But it took four solid tries to get it right. Um, let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, we've got some roving mics. There's someone with a white T-shirt there, their hand up. Yeah, hi, Cliff. Um, it was really interesting to hear your thoughts on um, scoring Far Cry. Uh, last year um, because I don't know if you're aware you actually won the BAFTA for it despite your frustrations um, so it's obviously incredibly well received in the video game community even if you found it challenging yourself so I was just wondering going forwards do you see yourself working on more games was that once enough for you? Yeah <laughs> uh, well it took a year I mean I really had to kind of not do some other things in order to do that <clears throat> um yeah, I, don't, I think it'll be a while before I do that. That was I did that because I really wanted to get immersed in action music, 
and uh, so I did action music for a year, and uh, maybe a while since I before I do another one. I mean, it was fun. It was a cool game. The villain was amazing. Another question. Uh, hi, Cliff. How important is it for a, an indie film director to learn about the language of music to speak to his composers? Because I always speak to my composer and I'm like, yeah, can you do this sound? And he's like, uh, okay. Um, so how important is it to learn for myself? I guess it would be helpful because most directors are not musicians and they don't usually speak the same language as a composer. It would be great. It, it rarely happens to me. Um, to me, if you can tell me why there's music in a scene, I'm all set. If you can tell me what the purpose and the function of the music is at a given point in the film, what the dramatic intentions are, I'm fine. You don't have to tell me, you know, make it minor, make it major, more black keys, more white keys. I I don't need the specific language of music to understand what a director is, is looking for. And even though it's a kind of a controversial practice, I think the practice of using temporary music while you're cutting the film, for the most part, is helpful to me. Because if a director says it, you know, I want it to be brown and slinky and heroic and I don't know what that means, but if you play me a piece of music, then then I understand what you're talking about. So I think there's a ways around it. Um, it'd be great if a director could talk like a musician, but um, I, I don't see it as a necessity. Uh, I look to the director to know the film better than, than I do, and even though he might express musical ideas awkwardly, I almost always give him the benefit of the doubt because he may have worked on the film for two or three years and, uh, you know, I come in at the two-month mark. So I always listen to the director pretty carefully and try to figure out what he's getting at, even though sometimes it's uh, expressed a little clumsily in musical terms. But just stick to talking about the music in dramatic terms, not musical terms and I think your co composer will be all right. And, and you mentioned earlier about seeing a rough cut of a film and then having a conversation with the director. Um, with directors you haven't worked with before, is it always the procedure that you wait to hear their ideas? Or do you come up with ideas yourself? What's, Or again, is it a case-by-case -case basis? Well, most of the time the, they give me a cut of the film and it's rare to see a rough cut of the film without some music already in there. So that's somebody's idea, usually the director's. So it usually comes with an idea built into it. Um, and that's more than enough. I, I don't want to be overwhelmed with a, a lot of ideas. I mean, oftentimes there's a thing called a spotting session where you sit down with the director, go through the whole film, they'll talk about each and every scene. And um, that probably happens about half the time. A lot of directors don't do it. Nicholas doesn't do it. Steven Soderbergh doesn't do it. But yeah, if the director's got any ideas, I'm, I'm all ears. Um, hi. So when you're composing for foreign films, does, is there any language barrier that comes in the way? I've done, uh, done four French films. I don't speak any French, and luckily the directors spoke very good French. And then I would have a few people that spoke French that would come over to the house and um, or I'd ask for a script that was um, translated to English. But uh, for those films, the directors really uh, met me more than halfway and spoke good English. Um, so no, it hasn't been a problem. And I thought it would be a terrible problem, not just because of the language, but just cultural differences about the film. And, and maybe there were, I was just unaware of it, but perhaps they liked my American sound for their... French films, I don't know, but um, no. So far, I've 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 been lucky enough to work with directors that were fluent in English. It's Thank interesting you. watching a film like Mia Culpa, mm -hmm. and and then looking back to an earlier work like Narc. Mm -hmm. um, not that the music is similar, but I could imagine that Fred Cavalier, the director, had actually watched Narc and thought, yeah, that's a kind of style that I really like. That that down and dirty, very gritty feel. Uh, 
I don't know. Perhaps. He he never he never mentioned Narc, but perhaps he did. That's a similar film, I guess. Hi, Cliff. Um, it was interesting you mentioned the the sounds for Traffic were made organically, and then you said that you were interested in creating those kind of sounds synthetically. I was just wondering if you had any kind of favorite software or um, particular instruments to create that kind of surreal ambient kind of sound. Well, traffic was mostly guitars, um, guitars and a lot of a lot of plugins. Um, the latest thing is um, wavetable synthesis. Seems kind of complicated enough that it it kind of resembles organic sound. So that's that's been my latest fascination. Um, there's a plugin called Serum that that does. Um, wavetable synthesis which is like kind of sweeping through a whole bunch of different wave shapes like you know there's a sine wave and a square wave and it sweeps through all these different variations of of basic synthesizer wave shapes and it sounds really organic um so that's my latest kind of ambient texture fetish and we've got time for one more question if there's anyone Otherwise, we'll move on to Neon Demon. You mentioned this new software. Is that something that you used for Neon Demon? No. Uh, no. Neon Demon, the software du jour, was, um, there's a lot of great um, vintage synthesizer emulations out now. They've become very popular. And, and uh, there's a synthesizer called uh, ARP 2600, which was a popular synth in 1971. And it was kind of complicated. It was like a modular thing. You had to plug stuff in. There's a great software emulation of it. So that was kind of, that was one of the popular synths for that score because I really wanted to create kind of a vintage synthesizer sound. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Neon Demon opens on the 8th of July. Um, there's a whole list of the films that Cliff Martinez has uh, composed scores for that I would recommend. If you haven't seen how of Drive, Traffic, and particularly Solaris, I strongly, strongly recommend uh, that you watch them. I also know that I think you can still get the vinyl of uh, the Solaris um, score. I think that's still available in, in, in certain places, and it really is a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. Um, thanks to BAFTA, to Picture House, and also to Icon for helping to organise this event. But most of all, can you please join me in thanking Cliff Martinez? Thank you.